right, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter number 1. We're going to look tonight at uh, an overview of 1 Samuel. to treating 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together. They are one book. But because I'm going to struggle to say everything I want to say about 1 Samuel, I thought it'd probably be best to wait on 2 Samuel until next week when we gather together, Lord willing. So I have you a list before you of six significant events in the book of 1 Samuel. We will cover as many of them as we can. We might make it all the way through, but we'll cover as many as we can. And uh, I, I think that you'll be refreshed and encouraged by our study. There's an outline of First Samuel at the top of your uh, overview note page. And, uh, and then below are those significant events. We're going to take them one at a time. Just a word or two about First and Second Samuel. In terms of literary or, or artistic beauty, First and Second Samuel are the most beautiful books in the Bible for the way they are constructed. And if you read them carefully, over and over and over again, each time you'll find a new feature, a literary artistic feature of First and Second Samuel that's meant to highlight uh, something that God's up to in the story itself. These unseen literary devices or parallels are all over First and Second Samuel. For instance, in First Samuel chapter one, we're going to be introduced to uh, two women who are, in the vernacular of 21st century America, sister wives. Are y'all familiar with that program? That's so sick. But my wife likes the show, so from time to time we have to watch it. And these these two wives are are competing essentially. One wife with sons and another wife who is, who is barren. And Hannah, the barren wife, is found weeping over her barrenness. And her husband, Elkanah, asks why it is that she cries and, and then explains to her, am I not better to you than ten sons? She's the favored wife, but she's without child and so heartbroken at her status. Later in 1 Samuel... The people of Israel come to Samuel as the prophet of God, and they say, give us a king. And although it's not spelled out in exactly the same terms, the response of God is essentially the same as Elkanah in chapter 1. Am I not better to you than ten kings? These kinds of parallels are all over the books of First and Second Samuel. We'll just touch a few of them tonight. But if, if you're looking for a place in the Scripture to settle in and to read repeatedly, there's not a book that I would recommend more highly to you than First and Second Samuel for its beauty and for the depth of teaching that we find here in First Samuel. I want us to look at uh, the birth of Samuel, uh, the circumstances under which Samuel is, is born first, in chapter 1. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since I've been with you, so I want to remind you that we're still in the period of the judges. Remember when we looked at the judges, we said that there were 12 judges. That's a little misleading. There are actually 13 judges because the 13th judge is Samuel, who functions both as the prophet of God and the judge of Israel. And unlike the judges of the book of Judges that judged 
tribal areas or territories within the land of Israel. Samuel is a prophet of God who is acknowledged from Dan to Beersheba. That means from the far north to the far south. All over Israel, everyone knows that Samuel is the man. He's the judge. He's the prophet. He is God's spokesperson in the land of Israel. Even his birth was somewhat miraculous. Chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. That's always bad, men, by the way. If, if, let me just make a little, here's a, some commentary that you didn't ask for, but it might be helpful. If anybody, if you ever find someone who argues either that plural marriage is acceptable because it's in the Old Testament, or more popularly, that the Old Testament is unacceptable and, and maybe even distasteful because of the presence of plural marriage in the Old Testament, you'll know that you're talking to someone who has not read the Bible. Because everywhere a man has more than one wife in the Old Testament, it always ends up a disaster. We're, we're living with problems today that are the direct result of a man having more than one wife 6,000 years ago. You understand that? The Arab-Israel conflict started in Abraham's bedroom. These are real-life situations, real-life issues. It did not work out well for Elkanah, nor did it for any other man in the Old Testament that made that decision for his life. I could say much more there, but we need to read on. Verse 2 again says, He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his, own ta- from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying, her husband Elkanah asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. And Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you'll take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. I'll enter into a vow with this son, she says, and this son will enter into a vow with you. Verse 12 says, while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was praying silently And though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. Now, there are indicators of what is to come already in this exchange. Eli is so spiritually disconnected that his knee-jerk response to the silent prayers of Hannah is, well, she's drunk. 
it may be an early indication of Eli's spiritual blindness, and it's probably an indicator of the spiritual condition within the nation of Israel as well. So someone's praying silently in the altar Sunday morning at the close of our service. My first uh, inclination is not to think that they might be drunk. You come to those kinds of conclusions when that's been your experience at some point in the past. Nevertheless, Eli is not terribly discerning. That's the case here in chapter 1, and it's the case later, especially in chapters 2 and 3. In verse 15, Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I've ha- I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you. She replied, and Hannah went on her way, and she ate and no longer looked despondent. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And after some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Samuel just means God heard. The Bible says the Lord remembered her. God heard her request and granted her a child. There's a, there's a theme that runs through First and Second Samuel. I call it the reversal of fortunes theme. Where God takes the person who's down and out. And, and, and they're uh, contrasted with a person who is uh, sort of on the up. There's a person here and there's a person here. And through the providence of God, he reverses their fortunes. The advantage that Penina had over Hannah was that she had a child. In fact, she had many children. Hannah had the affection of her husband, but she was barren. God heard her prayer, granted her a child, and the fortunes of Hannah and Penina were reversed in an instant. You see the same thing later with David and Saul. Saul is is here. Saul has the world by the tail. Everything is going for Saul. And David's just a shepherd boy out in the field tending his father's flocks. And by the providence of God, the fortunes of those two men are reversed as Saul presumes upon his status as king and David humbly walks before his God victoriously. All over the books of First and Second Samuel, God is reversing the fortunes of the people. The likely hero who's standing on top of the mountain at the end of God's work within their life has been replaced by the humble servant who walks faithfully with his God while the one who was once on the up has been unfaithful or presumed upon his status or in the case of Penina, her status before God. Now, you've already been introduced to Eli and the names of his two sons have been referenced here in chapter 1, Hophni and Phineas, but they become major players later in the book of First Samuel. Chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving for what God has done. When, when Trey was born, we, of course, you know, when you're young and married, you're, you're, like, you're way more spiritual than you are when the kids won't behave and you're older, you know. And so the plan was in the labor and delivery room, we were going to have this ceremony, you know. And, uh, and this was the passage that we were going to read, was Hannah's prayer. And 
not, not because we had been praying for a long time for a child. That was not the case at all. Trey was born one month before our one-year anniversary. If anything, we might have prayed that we did not have a child at that particular moment. Nevertheless, we were thankful that God had, had given us a child, and instead of reading Scripture, we just cried and snotted and prayed and thanked the Lord and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I always think of that when, when I come to that passage in 1 Samuel. In chapter 2 and verse 12, we're told something about Eli's two sons. The Bible says Eli's sons were wicked men, and they had no regard for the Lord. In fact, verse 13 goes on to say they had no regard for the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container or kettle or cauldron or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that man said to him, The fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would reply, No, I insist that you hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. And the sins of Hophni and Phinehas are chronicled in what remains of, of chapter 2. Now, things were different in Samuel's day than they are in ours. Um, if you order a ribeye and it's got a big piece of fat on the side, you'll cut it off and discard it. Um, some of you won't, but most of you will. All of you ladies will. I know how that'll go. But in, in ancient times, the fat was preferable to the, to the meat itself. So what, what's being described here is the priest coming in or sending their servant in to take the best part of the sacrifice before the sacrifice ever made it to its intended destination, which was to be as an offering before God. In, in, in chapter 3, uh, this is a passage that will be familiar to some of you. Samuel has been given over to Eli. Eli's the priest, and Hannah follows through with her vow before God. She gives Samuel into the care of, of Eli. Now, I would have liked to have seen Hannah choose a better priest to give her son over into the care of, but maybe she didn't have any other options. So Eli is going to be the mentor for young Samuel as he's been given over into the service of God. But chapter 3 and verse 1 says, The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and prophetic visions were not widespread. You see what I mean by things are not good in Israel? Verse 2 says, One day Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his room. Before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was located. And the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. And Eli replied, I didn't call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. And again, Eli replied, I didn't call you, my son. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel had not yet experienced the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. And he told Samuel, Go and lie down. If he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood there and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responded, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, 
I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. On that day, I'll carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary, and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Now, let's unpack what we've read here in chapter 3. Eli has become ignorant to, dull of hearing to the word of God. It took God calling out three times for Eli to get on board with the fact that God was calling Samuel. And the narrator even gives us this qualifier to help us to understand that Samuel is not guilty for failing to understand, for the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, the prophet boy has an excuse, but the older priest should have been aware that this was God calling out to him. And only after the third time could Eli discern that this was perhaps God calling Samuel. It's also interesting that the prophet boy is the one to whom God speaks and not the much older mentor priest in Eli. The very first word of prophecy that Samuel receives as the prophet of God is a word of judgment against Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, verse 13 helps us to understand exactly why it is that God is judging Eli. We don't, we don't know there to be any sin, what we call sins of commission in Eli's life. We, we don't know of him being actively involved in any deeds of unrighteousness, right? There's nothing in 1 Samuel that says he was with Hophni and Phinehas and they were taking the fat of the sacrifice. There's even a description in chapter 2 of Hophni and Phinehas behaving in a sexually immoral way within the context of the tabernacle. There's never any mention of Eli as being a part of those activities. He seems to be, for the most part, a good and upright fellow. But verse 13 diagnoses his issue, and this is important to First and Second Samuel. The Bible says, I told, I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary, and he has not stopped them. In our language, it is not the sin of commission for which Samuel is judged. It is the sin of omission. It is his failure to do actively what he knows he ought to do. Now, you remember this, and you think about this next year in your Read the Bible program as you're reading through First and Second Samuel. The cardinal sin in the First and Second Samuel narrative is passivity. The failure to take action when action needs to be taken. Now, you, th- you think about that. Later in the life of Saul, there's a time when Saul needs to go to battle. And the Bible says that he was hiding among his stuff. He was down within the stuff. There was just some stuff, and Saul's hiding there. When he, when he should have been functioning in a kingly way, leading the people militarily, leading the people politically, leading the people even spiritually in his office as king. He's hiding out. He's failing passively to do what he knows needs to be done. I mentioned to you on Sunday morning as we were studying Exodus together, there's a battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites. 
God says, you go wipe everything out and you, you kill the king. And instead of killing the king and wiping everything out, Saul brings back some stuff and he keeps King Agag alive. He fails passively to do what he knows he ought to have done actively. I'm telling you, this is a theme throughout First and Second Samuel. Here's the best known example of this sin of passivity. Do you remember in 2 Samuel, um, 2 Samuel 11, I think I've got my chapters right, when David is in the palace in the spring of the year, and the Bible notes that it's that time of the year when kings ordinarily go out to battle with their armies. In other words, David was not at that moment doing what he ought to have been doing. He was passively reclining in the palace. And it was on that day, under those circumstances, that he gazed out across the way and saw fair Bathsheba bathing on a neighboring roof. And he dispatched Bathsheba, and downward David went into a spiral, first into adultery, then into a murder to cover up the adultery, and down and down and down and down and down David ultimately went. Even later in David's life, when his son, um, oh, I'll forget the name of the son, when his son committed a sexual assault against his daughter, he failed to take action against his son, which ultimately resulted in the treason of his son Absalom. It was Absalom's sister who was assaulted. And when David failed to deal with it, Absalom took it into his own hands. This business of not doing what God has called us to do is a serious, serious matter in First and Second Samuel. I was in a conversation with some friends who were in a sister church um, even in the last week or so, and uh, an unfortunate situation where a young lady um, who has grown up in the youth group of that church has chosen to now identify as a male and is, has taken a very public stance at this new lifestyle change. And the, 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 question, the question was, should, is this a church discipline issue? And if, if I feel that it is and the church doesn't take the steps called for in Matthew 18, should, should this be the kind of thing that as a member of the church I should take up personally. Now, it's to that level, but, but here's a, a grievous example of public sin that needs to be addressed. And my response to that was the church doesn't have any choice or, or it will cease to function as a church. We feel as though just because it's a sin that we've not been actively involved in that it's somehow of, of lesser importance in the eyes of God. And sometimes I think, especially in the church, we define success and faithfulness by the absence of conflict. Sometimes what God calls us to do creates a little friction. But when God calls, listen to me, when God makes a command, the failure to follow through with that command is every bit as serious as the outright violation of that command in your personal life. Failing to tell the truth is just as bad as telling a lie. First and Second Samuel teach us in a, in a clear way 
that our passive sins can be as deadly, as dangerous as those sins that we actively participate in. So as a result of Eli's sin and his son's sins, the curse of God is coming against Israel. And in chapter 4, they go out to battle against the Philistines. The Philistines are the arch nemesis of the people of Israel in First and Second Samuel. And they go out to battle against the Philistines, believing that they're going to treat the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck job, and it's going to guarantee them victory. And we won't read all of chapter 4, because we're going to way, way, way run out of time if we do. But here's how it goes. They prepare themselves to go out. They're afraid that they're going to lose, so they say, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out like a good luck charm, and surely everything's going to go swimmingly for us there. And, and, and what, what the people of Israel are eventually reminded of is that God is not our heavenly vending machine and, and, that, and that he will not be used as our good luck charm. We, we can be guilty of operating in the same way. Lord, if you just get me through, I'll never do this again. The next day, there we are right over again. We, we run to him in a crisis moment with insincere petitions, and then we forget all about those commitments when, when that moment or time is passed in our life. They say, bring out the Ark of the Covenant. It symbolizes the presence of God really in a way that's heavier than the language of, of symbolism. Um, God is present with the Ark of the Covenant. And the experience of Israel in history has been that when God is with us, we are victorious. But God says, essentially, I'll not be your good luck charm. And they go out to battle against the Philistines, and they lose. And the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. It's one of the most embarrassing episodes in Israel's history. This is that moment in time in Israel's history when Ichabod is written over the tabernacle because the glory of God has departed. This is an embarrassing situation for the people of Israel. Now, some weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy, and I told you that Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, informs all of the Old Testament. Hang in there, I'll show you what I mean. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says, I've given you the covenant. These are the stipulations. Now, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will curse you. And the principal ways that God says he would bless the people if they obeyed was by making them multiply. He would give them children. He, he would give them uh, many children. He would give them an ancestry. He would give them a lineage. If you're faithful, I'll, I'll grant you uh, fruitfulness in, in terms of childbearing. And he says, I'll give you victory in battle if you're faithful to me. And I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll be with you. But the curse is just the opposite. If you fail to obey me, then, then you won't be fruitful. You won't have many children. And uh, um, you'll, you'll lose when you go to battle. You'll be defeated. That'll be a part of the curse. And I won't be with you. I'll leave you. One of the clearest ways this is illustrated is in the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God leaving the, the, land of, of the temple of God in Jerusalem. But, but here, I want you to think about how this has worked itself out already in 1 Samuel. Hannah was a faithful woman who prayed to God, and God heard her cry. And, and the product, it seems, of her faithfulness was that God gave her a son, just like he promised he would. He would answer the faithfulness of his, of his people. And to some extent, God gave her victory over her rival in Penina, 
through the birth of that child. He reversed their fortunes. And God was with her, wasn't he? The Bible says that God heard her cry. He remembered Hannah. Now think about Eli. In a significant leadership position in the nation of Israel, he is the priest. And yet he's disobeyed God. And here in chapter 4, although we didn't read through chapter 4, what happens is that in the battle, the sons of Eli die. When the report is brought back, Eli falls off a bucket. He's sitting next to the gate on a bucket. I doubt it was a five-gallon bucket the way it is in my imagination. But he falls off the bucket, hits the gate, breaks his neck, and he dies at the announcement of the death of his two sons. As a result of Eli's disobedience, God took away his children. He reversed the blessing and turned it to a curse. The Israelites lost in battle. They didn't enjoy victory, but they suffered defeat. And the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence in their midst, was taken away from the land of Israel. See, how we understand 1 Samuel is shaped by our understanding of the covenant that God establishes with Israel and the stipulations placed on that covenant, the promise of blessing and, and curses. So in chapters 8 through 15 of 1 Samuel, uh, we come to this place in the narrative where the people of Israel look around the world and they say, other nations have kings, we'd like to have a king just like that. Give us a king like other kings. And eventually, Saul is settled on. Saul is the king that they want. Now, the thing that you'll notice as you read about their selection of Saul and, and other descriptions of people's appearance in First and Second Samuel is that people often perform in a way that's inconsistent with their appearance. David's the shepherd boy, and he slays the Philistine giant. Saul is, he's the ideal king. He's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He's described as good-looking. Good-looking people don't get a fair shake in First and Second Samuel. That's just, you just read along and you'll find. Usually when the scripture says in First and Second Samuel that someone is handsome or beautiful, it doesn't end well for that person. There's something about the vanity that comes along with that description of the person. It just doesn't serve them well in terms of being faithful to God. Saul is the picture of a king. In our language, he was presidential, and there he is as king. In the beginning, serving quite well, but ultimately in the end, proving to be rather unfaithful. We talked about the book of Judges and the way Judges cast the tribe of Benjamin. It's not a good picture of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Judah is pictured favorably in the book of Judges. And it's David who's born of the tribe of Judah and ultimately serves as the valiant king of Israel. He is the prototypical king for the people of Israel. One of my, one of my favorite passages, favorite theological passages um, in First and Second Samuel, and, and, maybe, and maybe even in the Bible, is in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Look there for just a moment. There's no way we're getting through all of these, so we'll enjoy the ones we can. This is Samuel's farewell speech. He's dying. It's over for Samuel. Look at verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I've carefully listened to everything you said to me and placed the king over you. 
Now you can see that the king is leading you. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I've led you from my youth until the day. Here I am. Bring charges against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose oxen or donkey have I taken? Whom have I wronged or mistreated? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to overlook something? I will return it to you. You haven't wronged us, verse 4 says. You haven't mistreated us, and you haven't taken anything from anyone's hand, they responded. This is, this is not a terribly gracious speech from Samuel, by the way. He starts out, I haven't wronged anybody, just want the record to show. It's all on you. Y'all acted a fool, and I did right. And I can't do anything about that now. But just want the record to show that my hands are clean in this whole deal. In verse 5, he said to them, The Lord is a witness against you, and his anointed is a witness today that you haven't found anything in my hand. And they said, He is a witness. Samuel said to the people, The Lord, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt, is a witness. Now present yourselves so I may confront you before the Lord about all the righteous acts he has done for you and your ancestors. He says in verse 8, When Jacob went to Egypt, your ancestors cried out to the Lord, and he sent them Moses and Aaron, who led your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he handed them over to Sisera, commander of the army of Hatzor, to the Philistines and to the king of Moab. These enemies fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned, for we abandoned the Lord and worshipped the Baals and the Asterisks. Now deliver us from the power of our enemies. We'll serve you. So the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. He rescued you from the power of the enemies around you, and you lived securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, No, we must have a king rule over us even though the Lord your God is your king. If I can translate that for you briefly, Samuel said it was working the way it was. But you saw what neighboring nations had, and you had to have a king. Verse 13, Now here's the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord your God. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you and against your ancestors. Now, the reason that I value this passage so much is because it provides us with a, with a biblical theology of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. If you're an armchair theologian, you know that that's been debated for about 2,000 years in the history of the church, how those two things work together. Now, I want you to go back and look at verse 13 and what is said here. Now, here's the king you've chosen, the one you requested. This is the king that you wanted, people of Israel. You asked for him, and buddy, you got him. Now look at the next sentence in verse 13. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. The stronger language in the Hebrew, we might say, this is the king that God ordained to be your king. Well, now which one is it? Is it the king that the people chose? And, are, and, and by the way, they're chastised for choosing this king. It's, it's not a good thing in 1 Samuel that they chose this king. Or is it the king that God ordained? 
Now, the interesting thing is there was no one in the crowd who raised their hand at Samuel's final farewell speech and said, now, wait a minute. I don't have a place in my systematic theology for what you've just described. One of these cannot be true. There, there, there can be no consistency here. Either he's the king that we chose or he's the king that God chose. Somehow, mysteriously, in ways that exceed our ability to comprehend, there, there is a compatibility that exists between the freedom that God has given us as individuals and the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. So, so that we're able to say that no matter what happens in our life, the, the very hairs of our head, and even the hairs that are no longer in our head, are under the direct authority of God who is in heaven. And at the same time, you and I are personally responsible for the decisions that we make on an everyday basis. And I want to say this to you because I hear people engaging in theological debate and they're trying to defend what they believe to be right and honorable and noble and doing violence to the Scripture in the process. The failure to defend, to honor, to understand, to herald the absolute sovereignty of God over all things or the absolute responsibility of mankind for every decision they make is a failure to defend the teaching of the Scripture. You don't take one or the other. This is not a pick-and-choose kind of game. They're both absolutely true. God is absolutely in control over every event of our life, and you are absolutely responsible for every decision that you make. And just because you and I can't understand how that works does not make it untrue. In fact, it makes God, God great because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, I think that this is the product of our Western mentality. We want to understand everything. We need a very neat system for understanding everything. But the fact of the matter is God doesn't always fit our systems. He is greater than we are. He is beyond us in ways that we can't even understand. But surely both of these truths are a part of the experience of Israel in this particular instance. Now, there's more here in verse 14. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord your God. Did you get that? If you obey, if you are faithful, your king will be faithful. I'll give you a king who will be faithful. You know, we're really good in Christian quarters about complaining about our leaders. And I don't think that there's any debate nationally that we've got good cause to complain about leaders. Um, I think they've all lost their mind, frankly, with very few exceptions. That's kind of my take. But have you ever stopped to think that maybe God is giving us the kind of leadership we deserve. <laughs> Here, the Bible says, if you'll obey, he's talking to Israel, and we are not Israel, don't misunderstand me, but the principle remains. God says to Israel, if you'll be faithful to me, I'll give you a faithful leader. And, and, and we've, we quip, but it's true. 
that a, a good man could not be elected to high office in the United States of America anymore. It's very difficult for good men to find a place in, in elected service. And it's, it's not that our leaders are rotten that's sent us spiraling down the drain. It's that we are rotten as a people, that our nation is rotten, that people in general have lost their blooming minds. That's the problem. God says, Israel, if, if you'll bow before me, if you'll come before me, if you'll serve me faithfully, I'll give you the kind of leadership that would lead you on. Now, Samuel wraps up with a little more grace than, than he begins with here in our passage. And I really do wish that we had time to work through uh, other uh, of these passages. Maybe next week we can look at, at David's life as a pattern, as, an, uh, as a whole in First and Second Samuel. But here, here in First Samuel, it's, it's sufficient to say David is introduced as uh, the shepherd boy who would soon become the king over all of Israel. Samuel goes down as the prophet with the job of anointing one of Jesse's sons. Jesse brings the older boys in, and uh, he says, he's not here. you have any more? And he says, yeah, there's one more. He's out shepherding the flock. He's out taking care of the little things. And Jesse calls for David, and Samuel said, he's the one. And he anoints the shepherd boy as king. Here's an interesting contrast, talking about the literary beauty of 1 Samuel. There's an episode in Saul's life when they're looking for him to be king when he's out and he's responsible for his father's herd of donkeys. And he loses the donkeys. In fact, he has to enlist help to find the donkeys. Now, you're probably thinking, if I lost a donkey, I'd be glad he was gone and I didn't have to fool with him anymore. But in David's day, a, a, a sheep is like a Volkswagen Beetle, and a donkey is like a Ferrari. David is out in the field, and he's faithful with the little things. And here is Saul with everything going for him, and he's crashed his father's car. It, it should have been clear from the outset that Saul was not the man for the job. But in the providence of God, he lays a foundation that, that David would take up to serve the Lord faithfully as the king over Israel. There's a whole lot more that we could say there. I would encourage you to read and read and read and read and read First and Second Samuel. And, uh, and, and there, there is, if you're just a reader that likes to read things that are beautifully written, I, I think if I had, as a lost person, if someone had pointed me to First and Second Samuel, I think that there are elements of First and Second Samuel that would have been captivating for me. But as a believer, to watch God's hand as he works and moves within the nation of Israel, and he does what he does through his good providence, reversing the fortunes of disadvantaged people. It really is the story of God's incredible grace toward his people. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come to Second Samuel, and we'll look at what God does in David's life and how he stands in the ancestral lineage of Jesus Christ, our Savior.